Well, this morning we're going to talk about the law, rules, regulations, standards, and practices. I know, you're already at the edge of your seat. But we got to hear the law twice this morning, both in the liturgy and the readings. When I was attending Moody Bible Institute, there were plenty of rules. Some of them were unfortunate reminders that I attended a school that still believed that watching movies was wrong. But many of them were simply common sense. A well-known rule that was often quoted could be summed up as, don't blank out the window. You could fill in the blank with whatever you wanted, because our dormitories were high-rises in downtown Chicago. Nothing should have gone in or out of those windows. But this didn't stop many students from hurling anything from apples, whatever they had on hand, either towards the interior plaza of the Institute or out towards the city itself, including a group of men on the 10th floor who thought it would be a great idea to test their abilities to create an enormous water balloon and ended up dropping a garbage bag full of water 100 feet down to the city below, ultimately doing serious damage to a taxi. (laughs) Sometimes the law is needed. Our youth group has rules as well. Now, you don't build a youth ministry on an edifice of laws and regulations, but it turns out, I found, when you become a youth pastor, the necessity for rules makes itself apparent over time. Things like no boys in girls' rooms, no girls in boys' rooms. We will speak in turn. You may not speak out of turn. You may not speak until you have been acknowledged. Do not walk off by yourself when riding the L train. You may not text during prayer. Stick with a buddy. If you do anything that kicks you out of the mall, I will disavow any association with you. (laughs) Let's hold on to the Frisbee while we walk down the street. No getting out of the car while it's stopped, and I will control my own radio. Thank you very much. (laughs) Paul may tell us that the law awakens sin, but I think if adolescence is at all like the rest of life, we're pretty good at discovering sin on our own. Because we wouldn't be naturally fruitful and free without any law. Give a quick read of William Golding's Lord of the Flies to get a picture of what the innocence of childhood is like without restrictions and what happens when we're left to our own devices. Or for that matter, read the end of the book of Judges. After a chilling count of rape, murder, and genocidal revenge, the author simply notes that there was no king in that day, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The key is, by our own devices, we cannot the law. God has to give the Israelites the Ten Commandments. This is not a kingdom of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's certainly for the people, but it doesn't come from their agreed-upon understanding of a just life. It seems like very little of this was self-evident. And it certainly doesn't depend on the wisdom of one godly man or one godly council. The commentary at the end of Judges is a critique that they are not following their one true king, and that is Yahweh. And the law given to these people seems to be folly at first. It goes against the very inclinations that drive us. Honoring one God, honoring one spouse, my natural desires are to do the opposite. And now that we live in the enlightened West, we know very well that honoring one spouse is just nonsense. We're not made to do that. We're much smarter than that now. The rest of the law in the Old Testament is no better. In both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Israelites are commanded to leave some of their field unharvested so that sojourners and poor might come in and take it for themselves. Even worse than a redistribution of wealth, God cuts out the middleman and commands these people to leave the food out in the open for immigrants and beggars to take. Perhaps God is the real socialist. I'd like to add that joke reads funnier in my notes because there's a little smiley face afterwards. (laughs) Uh, So for those of you who are offended by my political jab, please just stick with me for a little bit. Paul tells us, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 
And then the law given to Israel was slowly corrupted thanks to human wisdom. Jesus' actions in the temple were not to cleanse it from one terrible abomination. This wasn't like those reformers before Christ who purged pagan worship from the temple. This was a corruption far more sinister, a combination of human logic and selective reading. See, if people need to offer sacrifices, it makes sense that the temple would offer an easy way to buy those sacrifices. I mean, forget the point that the Levitical law was about bringing your own animals. Let's just provide animals for them. You can travel in. And if we're going to have an animal market, why not have our own currency rather than having everybody exchange their own money and figure out an economic system? We'll just have our own money, and then we're going to have to have money changers because if you're going to have a currency, you've got to have a currency exchange. And real estate in Jerusalem is at a premium. Why not just place the currency exchange in the lesser-used part of the temple, the outer courts where the Gentiles worship? This is fine, right? It's a natural progression of logic. So when Jesus comes in preaching that salvation has come to both Jews and Gentiles and then finds at the court of the Gentiles the space dedicated for Gentile worship has become a place for trade, suddenly they've missed the point. Suddenly the very idea that Israel is supposed to bless the world has gone to the side. They're following the letter of the law. They're following a very simple, natural, logical progression from Sacrifice to money changing. But when Jesus comes in, something is terribly wrong, and the temple has lost one of its main purposes as being a witness to the world. And so he overturns tables and makes a whip. Something has gone terribly wrong. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And then we look at the cross. We proclaim that the Messiah, the one who is going to establish the rule of God here on earth, God himself making his dwelling place among us, that what we say is he decided while he was on earth that part of God's plan was to die the death of a slave. There was another widespread issue of crucifixions before Jesus. It was the slave revolt, and it was Spartacus, and people were lit on fire on crosses. And the point was, the cross is for you to know Rome is still in charge. And so God coming to earth to exclaim that he is in charge, to proclaim that God is making things new, and our symbol of that is the very symbol that Rome uses to say, I don't think so, we're still in charge. And that through that we are given new life. Through death we somehow are given life. This is folly for those who do not have eyes to see. This is a ridiculous claim, especially for those who look for signs and wisdom to understand the ways of God. Paul says the Jews want signs and the Greek want wisdom. And Paul tells us that neither receive what they want. Because the signs that the Jews wanted were in front of their very eyes and they could not see them. And the supreme wisdom that should have convinced the Gentiles would not fit for them. Because God's wisdom does not match up with our wisdom. The law exists because on our own we can't live righteously. And even having the law did not guarantee that God's people would understand his ways and follow his paths. Because your perspective is wrong. Because our perspective is flawed. I once heard a lecture by a woman who refers to herself as a wrongologist. And she opened with a simple question, what does it feel like to be wrong? And at first the answers seemed like you know, that, that, pit, that feeling in the pit of your stomach, embarrassment. But she corrected it. Feeling wrong feels exactly the same as feeling right. It's just that when you find out you're wrong, that you suddenly feel terrible. 
No one, when plowing forward in their wrongness, understands their folly. When I am wrong in every possible way and I'm moving forward, I don't understand that I'm wrong. I don't see that I'm wrong. I think I'm totally right. And so no one, when living a life that matches this world's wisdom, thinks that they are wrong because being wrong feels like being right. You and I cannot, by our own strength, fully discern right from wrong. We need an external aid to right our compass. And if this were the type of church with altar calls, this is where I'd be calling you to come forward and accept Jesus as your personal Savior and have your perspective corrected. And that initial act of repentance is, in fact, the most important step we take. And I would even be bold enough to say that if anyone hearing these words has not made that first step, I would call you to do so. But that first step alone will not just do. That first step is the reception of the law at Sinai. That first step is pointing in the right direction at first. But we must continually correct our course. And Lent is the time to do that. We must use Lent as a step back to reassess where we are. And I don't just mean a slight course correction. I mean a complete reevaluation of where we stand with God and what he might be calling us as individuals and as a community. From our friendships to our politics to our theology to the TV shows that we watch, you don't go into the wilderness to learn how to spend a little bit less time on Facebook. You go into the wilderness to allow God to do whatever he wants with you, big or small, and you'd better anticipate big. God didn't give ten amendments. He gave ten commandments. Jesus didn't call for a scale back of the economic intrusion into the Gentile worship space with ten action points. He turned over tables. Now, the balance of this kind of disorientation is community. Our lives as Christians happen in community, and so if God calls you to something big, make sure that others could recommend it as well. I was thoroughly impressed when we visited Jesus People USA last year, and in describing how they make their major decisions, there's a, I don't know if they call it an elder board, or some some decision-making body of nine people, um, and they all had to be unanimous in major decisions. And the way it was explained to us was, if the Holy Spirit's going to speak to one of us, he better be speaking to all of us. And so use this community. Use the church to be a place where you can throw out crazy ideas. Because maybe it's something of your own invention. Fasting can cause some disorientation. (laughs) But maybe it's something that God's calling you to do. Maybe God has something big for you to change. Maybe you've been walking in a wrong way for a very long time. And God's calling you to step out of that. And maybe stepping out of that is challenging. And maybe stepping out of that is going to be painful. But that's what the wilderness does to us. That's what Lent does to us. It's a chance for us to step back and completely reassess and allow God to give us what we need. Not to give us minute changes, not to nitpick, but to give us a whole new compass orientation. And so I challenge you to be disoriented. A call to a holy Lent is a call to allow God to give you the law that you need to hear, to allow his weakness and foolishness to be your strength and your wisdom, to allow him to walk into the spaces that you've allowed over time to be overrun with gradual sin and perversion and let him flip over some tables. Spend these days in the wilderness as a chance for God to get a hold of you and shake you back into where he wants you. Let him give you a better, more abundant perspective for your life. And with the consultation of others in the community, come out of the desert with a new, godly perspective so that your life may be more like his 
and that his kingdom would be known on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.